Ezekiel 21, verses 28-32. Now, as we get back up to speed in our study of Ezekiel, we need to cover briefly these last verses of chapter 21 for a couple of reasons. It's going to remind us of where we were, and it's also going to refresh us as to how to study prophecy. I think you're going to see a need as we continue on in Ezekiel, the importance of being reminded of how to study prophecy. Look at verse 28. Verse 28, And you, son of man, prophesy and say, Thus says the Lord God, concerning the Ammonites, and concerning their reproach. Say, A sword, a sword, is drawn for the slaughter. It is polished to consume and to flash like lightning. While they see for you false vision, while they divine lies for you, to place you on the necks of the profane wicked, whose day has come, the time of their final punishment, return it to its sheath in the place where you were created. In the land of your origin, I will judge you, and I will pour out my indignation upon you, and I will blow upon you with the fire of my wrath, and I will deliver you into the hands of your brutish men, skillful to destroy. You shall be fuel for fire, your blood shall be in the midst of the land, and you shall no more be remembered, for I, the Lord, have spoken. Now, as we see here in this prophecy, in these verses, a prophecy against the Ammonites, he's using pretty harsh language about how they're going to be destroyed and, and not remembered anymore their day of their final punishment. Yet also in the midst of this, we see words like put the sheath of the sword back in its sheath. Yet at the same time, the, the sword is going to accomplish all its purpose. And so what I want you to understand is, is in order for to get a better understanding of the fullness of prophecy, you need to understand all the prophecies, if you can, that God has said about a certain topic. One of the reasons we get into our troubles in our studies, in our different eschatology, in our studies of end times, is because certain people will take a passage of Scripture and they will build their end times view from a passage of Scripture. Well, it says here. You ever, ever heard anybody say, well, my Bible says, and they just take a, a passage of Scripture. The problem is, with prophecy, that's only a part of the puzzle. There's more in other places. And to really understand what God has said and what God is doing, you need to look at all the different places that God has spoken about this. So how do you put together the fact that he's telling him to return the sword to his sheath when you return the sword to its sheath, you're not, you're not done using it. You're holding it for a while. Yet there's going to be a final judgment. Yet they'll be remembered no more. Well, go with me back to Jeremiah chapter 49. And we'll maybe get a little bit clearer picture. There's a judgment that's coming on the nation of Ammon and the Ammonites. And in Jeremiah 49, we see a little bit more clearer picture in verses 1 through 6, when God speaks through Jeremiah as well about this same nation. In Jeremiah 49... Concerning the Ammonites, thus says the Lord, has Israel no sons? Has he no heir? Why then has Milcom dispossessed Gad and his people settled in its cities? Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will cause the battle cry to be heard against Rabbah of the Ammonites. It shall become a desolate mound, and its villages shall be burned with fire. Then Israel shall dispossess those who dispossessed him, says the Lord. Wail, O Heshbon, for Ai is laid waste. Cry out, O daughters of Rabbah. Put on sackcloth, lament, and run to and fro from among the hedges. For Milcom shall go into exile with his priests and officials. Why do you boast of your valleys, O faithless daughter, who trusted in her treasures, saying, Who will come against me? Behold, I will bring terror upon you, declares the Lord God of hosts, from all who are around you. And you shall be driven out, every man straight before him, with none to gather the fugitives. But afterward... I will restore the fortunes of the Ammonites, declares the Lord. So here we see that there is going to be a judgment of the Ammonites, and God's going to use the nation of Israel to do it. 
But in that day when he wipes his, the Ammonites out in the sense that their final judgment comes and there'll be no more Ammonites, it appears, what's he going to do during the millennial kingdom? He's going to return his sword to his sheath and the Ammonites are going to be allowed to replenish and have their fortunes restored. We don't have time to get into it, but if you were to go through chapter 48 and 49 of, of Jeremiah and look at all the prophecies about the different nations, not every nation is given that same promise. You'll find that some nations are told that in the millennial kingdom he'll restore their fortunes, but other nations like Damascus and Syria, not going to be restored. We'll see Egypt's going to be restored during the millennial kingdom, but other nations aren't. So what's the difference then? How does God determine which nations are going to be? Because is, is God not going to judge all nations at the, in the very end? Is he not going to judge all nations? The Bible's very, very clear about that. Well, how does God determine then which nations in the millennial kingdom get to have their fortunes restored and which nations don't get to have their fortunes restored? I'm sorry? Which ones stood by Israel? And there's a little bit more than that, too. That's good. That's who, those who stood by Israel. But there's more to it than that. Go with me to Jeremiah chapter 12. The Bible actually tells us the measuring stick God's going to use. And as I read this to you, I want us to all, those of us who are children of God through faith in Christ, who are Americans, who live in this wonderful country, I want you to let this truth that I'm about to read to you be used of God to have us pray for our country more and more every day as the political climate in this globe continues to get crazy. Listen to what God says in Jeremiah 12, verses 14 through 17. Thus says the Lord concerning all my evil neighbors, who touched the heritage that I have given my people Israel to inherit it. That's the land. Behold, I will pluck them up from their land, and I will pluck up the house of Judah from among them. And after I have plucked, up them, plucked them up, I will again have compassion on them, and I will bring them again each to his heritage and each to his land. And it shall come to pass, if they will diligently learn the ways of my people to swear by my name, as the Lord lives, even as they taught my people to swear by Baal, then they shall be built up in the midst of my people. But if any nation will not listen, then I will utterly pluck it up and destroy it, declares the Lord. Do you see it? It's not just how the nations treat Israel. It's also whether or not those nations will turn to the God of Israel in the same way in which they turned the nation of Israel away from the God of Israel and had them worship the Baals. God says in those days, I'm going to be, as you know, sending back Jesus. He's going to be sending the Messiah. He's going to rule and reign. And if those nations will humble themselves and say the Jewish God, Jehovah is the Lord God. Jesus is the Messiah. He is God. And they not only are pro-Israel, but pro the God of Israel and learn from Israel. And you're going to see their prophecies that say people are going to run to the Jews and say, teach me, teach me, show me. And so the nations that are not only pro-Israel, but pro the God of Israel in those days are the nations that are going to have their fortunes restored during the millennial kingdom. Sounds like we got something to pray about in our country, don't we? Pray that we're not only for Israel. I think when we pray that we're for Israel, we, we stop too short. Pray that our nation will turn to the God of Israel. Because that's the determining factor of whether or not their fortunes will be restored. All right? You see how much there is just in those few verses there in his end of chapter 21? That's why when you study prophecy, the whole of Scripture, you need the whole of Scripture to be able to really put it together. So let's go to chapter 22, because I would love to see us be able to get all the way through chapter 22 tonight. I'm going to read to you the whole chapter, chapter 22, verses 1 through 31, and then we're going to break it down into sections. 
And the word of the Lord came to me, saying, And you, O son of man, will you judge? Will you judge the bloody city? This is Jerusalem. If you don't have if you're not up to speed, remember, as much as God's been warning through Ezekiel and Jeremiah and Isaiah that a judgment is coming on Jerusalem and the final destruction in 586 BC, at this point in Ezekiel's writings and his prophecy, that final judgment hasn't happened yet. It's really close that the final judgment hasn't come on Jerusalem yet. Then, then declare to her all her abominations. You shall say, thus says the Lord God, a city that sheds blood in her midst so that her um, time may come and makes idols to defile herself. You have become guilty by the blood that you have shed and defiled by the idols that you have made. And you have brought your days near and appointed the time of your years to come. Sorry, the appointed time of your year has come. Therefore, I have made you a reproach to the nations and a mockery to all the countries. Those who are near and those who are far from you will mock you and your name is defiled. You are full of tumult. Behold, the princes of Israel in you, everyone according to his power, have been bent on shedding blood. Father and mother are treated with contempt in you, and the sojourner suffers extortion in your midst. The fatherless and the widow are wronged in you. You have despised my holy things and profaned my Sabbaths. There are men in you who slander to shed blood, and people in you who eat on the mountains. They commit lewdness in your midst. In you men uncover their father's nakedness. In you they violate women who are unclean in their menstrual impurity. One commits an abomination with his neighbor's wife. Another lewdly defiles his daughter-in-law. Another in you violates his sister, his father's daughter. In you they take bribes to shed blood. You take interest and profit and make gain of your neighbor, make gain of your neighbors by extortion. But me you have forgotten, declares the Lord God. Behold, I strike my hand at the dishonest gain that you have made and at the blood that has been in your midst. Can you, your courage endure or can your hands be strong in the days that I shall deal with you? I, the Lord, have spoken and I will do it. I will scatter you among the nations and disperse you through the countries, and I will consume your uncleanness out of you. And you shall be profaned by your own doing in the sight of the nations, and you shall know that I am the Lord. And the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, the house of Israel has become dross to me. All of them are bronze and tin and iron and lead in the furnace. They are dross silver of silver. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you have all become dross, therefore, behold, I will gather you into the midst of Jerusalem, as one gathers silver and bronze and iron and lead and tin into a furnace to blow the fire on it in order to melt it, so I will gather you in my anger and in my wrath, and I will put you in and melt you. I will gather you and blow on you with fire, with the fire of my wrath, and you shall be melted in the midst of it. As silver is melted in a furnace, so you shall be melted in the midst of it, and you shall know that I am the Lord. I have poured out my wrath upon you. And the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, say to her, You are a land that is not cleansed or rained upon in the day of indignation. The conspiracy of her prophets in her midst is like a roaring lion tearing the prey. They have devoured human lives. They have taken treasure and precious things. They have made many widows in her midst. Her priests have done violence to my law and have profaned my holy things. They have made no distinction between the holy and the common. Neither have they taught the difference between the unclean and the clean. And they have disregarded my Sabbaths, and so I am profaned among them. Her princes in her midst are like wolves, tearing the prey, shedding blood, destroying lives to get, on it, get dishonest gain. And her prophets have smeared whitewash for them, seeing false visions and divining lies for them, saying, Thus says the Lord God, when the Lord has not spoken. The people of the land have practiced extortion and committed robbery. They have expressed, oppressed the poor and needy and have extorted from the sojourner without justice. And I sought for a man among them who should build up the wall and stand in the breach before me for the land, that I should not destroy it, but I found none. 
Therefore, I have poured out my indignation upon them. I have consumed them with the fire of my wrath. I have returned their way upon their heads, declares the Lord God. A lot here. And like I say, Lord willing, we'll be able to get through this tonight. As the final judgment is about to fall on Israel and Jerusalem, God gets very, very specific as to what Israel has done and why God is doing or about to do what he's going to do. The first thing he points out is that they have become a bloody city. And they have despised God's teachings about blood and its purity. And they have devised ways to shed blood and to disregard its purity. Now, we're not going to take the time to go into a full study of it. It's an interesting study for another time. But as you know, the life is in the blood. And as you know, the blood is pointing to the blood of Christ. And there's so much about the blood. But one of the things was that the blood would be pure. And the blood be kept pure. And I want you to look real quick at verses 2, 3, 4, 6, 9, 10, and 12. Look closely at what, at what he says again. Verse 2. And you, son of man, will you judge? Will you judge the bloody city? Look at verse 3, a city that sheds blood in her midst. Verse 4, you have become guilty by the blood that you have shed. Look at verses 6, 9, and 10. Behold, the princes of Israel in you, everyone, according to his power, have been bent on shedding blood. Verse 9, there are men in you who slander to shed blood. Verse 10, in you they violate women who are unclean in their menstrual impurity. And verse 12, they take bribes to shed blood. So one of the reasons why God was judging the city of Jerusalem is because they had become a bloody city and blood had lost its holiness. Blood had lost its importance and its purity. As you know, there's a reason why God wanted them to understand the holiness and the purity of the special significance of the blood because it was pointing to the blood of Christ. But yet at the same time, blood became nothing to these people and shedding of blood was nothing. And they actually even came up with ways in order to do it. And because of that, God said, I'm bringing a judgment. They also, along with doing this, despised God's holy things by worshiping idols and taking advantage of one another. Look at verses 3, 4, 8, 12, and then 26 and 27. In verse 3, look what it says. They make idols to defile themselves. And the second part of verse uh, 4, and they've defiled by the idols that you have made, and you have brought your days near, the appointed time of, of the time of your years has come. Look at verse uh, 8. You have despised my holy things and profaned my Sabbaths. Jump down to ver end of verse 12. But to me you have forgotten, declares the Lord. Go to verses 26 and 27. Her priests have done violence to my law and have profaned my holy things. They have made no distinction between the holy and the common. Neither have they taught the difference between the unclean and the clean. And they have disregarded my Sabbaths so that I am profaned among them. So we're going to stop for a second and I'm going to ask you some questions. What's the big deal? Why is it such a big deal that they had lost sight of what was clean and unclean, holy and unholy, special and not special? Any idea why that was important to God? And, and once you'll see it, you'll see it's actually very, very clear, but you might be a little cloudy on it yourself. But what are some, give me some wild guesses. I haven't heard you guys, you know, suggest things in a while, so. If you can't determine good, then you won't know evil when, you, when you're in it. I wasn't expecting Grandma Cuckoo to get it first try. <laughs> it helps us understand right from wrong. If you don't understand right from wrong, good from bad, holy from unholy, how are you going to recognize sin? If nothing's sinful or if nothing's sacred and everything's the same, how are you going to say such a sin? And aren't we living in a world in which people have that same attitude today? 
It's not that big of a deal. Go for it. Yeah, yeah, I was thinking about Isaiah 1, where he's talking about your sacrifices mean nothing to me anymore. They, were, they repulsed me because they were so overwhelmed with the idea that they could just sin and sin and sin and sin and just throw more sacrifices and everything would be okay. You got it. You got it. And so what had happened to them is they had lost the holiness of God. Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Does anybody know the rest of that verse? Knowledge of the Holy One brings understanding. Folks, what had happened to the nation of Israel and what's happened to every nation, what's happened to our nation, the whole idea of right and wrong, sin and no sin has been lost. And because of that, they had despised the holy things and they had forgotten God. That's where our country is today. Yes, ma'am. There's something else here in this passage. Remember, this is a section in chapter 22 where God is explaining to them why he's going to be judging the city of Jerusalem and the people of Israel. He's been telling them for a while, but he's going into specific detail in this chapter. Not only had they lost sight of the holiness of blood and the purity of the blood and become a bloody city, not only had they lost sight of the holy things and the fact that things that their sin, they also, their religious leaders led out in these activities and told them that God was okay with it. And tell me that isn't happening in our world today. Go to chapter uh, um, 22, look at verses 23 through 29. Listen again. And the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, say to her, you are a land that's not cleansed or rained upon in the day of indignation. The conspiracy of her prophets in her midst is like a roaring lion tearing the prey. They have devoured human lives. They have taken treasure and precious things. They have made many widows in her midst. Her priests have done violence to my law and have profaned my holy things. They have made no distinction between the holy and the common, neither have they taught the difference between the unclean and the clean, and they have dis excuse me, disregarded my Sabbaths so that I am profaned among them. Her princes in her midst are like wolves, tearing the prey, shedding blood, destroying lives to get dishonest gain. And her prophets have smeared whitewash for them, seeing false visions and divining lies for them, saying, Thus says the Lord God, when the Lord has not spoken. The people of the land have practiced extortion and committed robbery. They have oppressed the poor and needy and have extorted from the sojourner without justice. What had happened was not only had this happened in the nation, but now the leadership had been leading out in this. And when the leadership leads out in this, you're in trouble. Now I have to stop for a second and I have to talk to you about something. And I want you to hear me because this is going to touch on areas that some of you like and some of you don't. And maybe most of you don't like, but I got to be a faithful preacher and teacher of the word to you. Has God ordained in his church those who are going to be in leadership over us? Yes. Pastors, teachers, elders. The Bible is very, very clear that there are those who are supposed to have this spiritually authority over us. Now, before I go any further, do we like it? No, we don't. We don't. In many of our churches, most of our pastors today don't have any more authority than a paid babysitter. The ultimate attitude of the congregation to their pastor is, you're really not my dad. And so, folks, what I want to talk to you about real quickly, I'm going to take you to a couple of passages. Understanding that even though these passages say that we're to submit ourselves to those in authority over us, understanding that there may be those over us who are not executing their role and their responsibilities 
in the way that God has designed. We've already touched on that. But what should be the attitude of us who are under authority in the church in these days, even if our pastors aren't doing what we think they're supposed to be doing? Pray for them and submission, not undermining, not subverting. And I want to remind you of a couple of passages and let the Spirit of God speak to you. Because as you're going to see, the Bible's very, very clear that even, well, our pastors aren't doing what they're supposed to be doing. Whose job is it to deal with them? God's. Go with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. First Thessalonians chapter 5, starting in verse 12. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are what? Over you in the Lord. Don't miss that. Because and admonish you and esteem them very highly in love because of their work. I had a man come to me one time when I was preaching in New Orleans on this passage. And I had been preaching on the fact that we were to respect those who are over us in the Lord. And he came up to me afterwards and he said, respect is earned. And this was after church. And we we're in the foyer of the church and there was a chair there. And I said, pull up that chair and have a seat. He goes, why? I said, because uh, you didn't hear the sermon and I need to re-preach it. I said, let me take you back to this passage and look at it again. Does the Bible say you're to respect those who are over you because of who they are and they've earned it or because of the role that God gave them? We're to respect them and respect those who are over us in the Lord and because of their work. We're to submit ourselves. Was G Did Jesus have the authority to not listen to mom and dad when he was in the temple? I mean, he was God himself. But he submitted himself to his mother and his father and when they said, come with us, he went with them. Shouldn't I be about my father's business? Shouldn't I be in my father's house? Mom and dad said, come with us. And he submitted himself to the role that his mom and dad had given him. Even though he was greater, he submitted himself to them. Daniel, Daniel Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego submitted themselves to the authorities that were over them, even though they were ungodly authority. Romans chapter 14, verse 4 says, Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls. And the Lord is able to make him stand. We have a tendency sometimes to think, well, I need to get this right. Or, hey, would we, if we believe that God has ordained authority in the church, even if the authority is not doing what we believe think they ought, God has designed authorities to deal with that. And most likely it's not us. Submit yourself, humble yourself, and let God deal with it. All right? Go to... Uh, Hebrews chapter 17, one more passage, and then we'll get back to our section in Ezekiel. Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they're keeping watch over your souls. Don't miss this part. As those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. In other words, we're to submit to the leaders that God's put over us, understanding that God's going to hold them accountable. David submitted himself to Saul, even though Saul was not doing what Saul ought to do, and he left Saul in God's hands. Who am I to raise my hand against the Lord's anointed? And folks, I just want to remind you in this day, as we've already touched on, one of the main things I deal with as I travel around 
trying to help churches get back to the Word of God and what it means to walk in the Spirit and to be led of the Lord and not to have the church manual run the church, but the Spirit of God actually lead His church. I deal a lot with leadership that doesn't understand this, but you know what? Ultimately, God's going to deal with that leadership, and it should not be the church undermining the leadership. Submit yourself. But what about what if, what if, what if, what if things all fall apart? Well, they may. God's able to take care of that too. And one day you're going to stand before him before what you, because of what you did, not because of what they did. Oh, they'll stand before him because of what they did. And you don't want to be standing before him being judged because you took a role that was not your role. Or you tried to take control over someone who was in authority over you. And that authority over you was given to you by God. Are all the leader, is all the leadership good? No. Is there going to be bad leadership in the last days? Yes. You follow Jesus and you do what he tells you to do and you leave the dealing with the leadership to the Lord. As you see, he keeps track. He keeps track. And a big part of why Israel's being judged is because the leadership, the priests, the princes, had all turned their back on God. Has anybody ever thought about the fact that when Hannah, and Hannah prays for this baby, she finally gets this miraculous baby, Samuel, and she dedicates him to the Lord. God has him, her bring him, Samuel, to who? To Eli, the priest. By the way, good guy, bad guy? He was a horrible priest. His sons were even worse. And he knew it. And he wasn't doing anything about it. And God had Hannah bring her miraculous, prayed for, prayed for, prayed for baby, and left him in the leadership under Eli and Hophni and Phinehas. God doesn't do it like we would do it. And I'm telling you, I don't know what's going on in your local church, but I can tell you this, as soon as you take your eyes off of the pastor and put them back on the Lord Jesus, you will be fine. All right, now that wasn't in my notes, but we were supposed to deal with it. There's a fourth reason here back in Ezekiel 22. There's a fourth reason back in Ezekiel 22 as to why it was, well, actually, not a fourth reason. The, the next part of what is going on in uh, verses 13 through 22, God says what he was going to do. Does anybody remember? We just take a quick look at verses 13 through 22. What was he going to do then to the nation of Israel because of these things? Because they were a bloody city, because they had lost sight of what sin was and what was holy, because the priests and their leadership were actually leading people astray and actually telling everybody it was okay and God's okay with it. What? did God say in verses 13 through 22 he was going to do? Scatter and disperse, but keep going. Consume them and treat them like what? He's going to purify them as the silver. Now, if you don't know what that is, the dross, when you purify metal, you heat it up real hot to the point that it melts. And the impurities come to the surface and you scrape them away. It's kind of like sludge on the top of a, a, a mucky pond or whatever. And the only thing that's left is what is pure. And God said, I'm going to treat the nation of Israel, the city of Jerusalem, and the Judeans as silver. And I'm going to put you through the fire, guys. And what's dross is going to be just scraped away and destroyed. And the only thing left going to be left is what's pure. Oh, and God knows how to do that. He'll take care of that. But I want to deal with, in the time we have left tonight, verses 30 through 31. 
God then says, and I sought for a man among them who should build up the wall and stand in the breach before me, before the land, that I should not destroy it. But I found none. Therefore, I have poured out my indignation upon them, and I have consumed them with the fire of my wrath. I have returned their way upon their heads, declares the Lord God. I'm going to read it to you again. God says, after all this, I looked for a man among them who should build up the wall and stand in the breach before me, before the land, that I should not destroy it. But I found none. Therefore, I have poured out my indignation upon them. I have consumed them with fire of my wrath. I have returned their way upon their heads, declares the Lord's God. The Lord God. Here's, here's my question. Here's what jumped out at me as I read that passage. Very familiar passage. But what jumped out at me was this question. What about Ezekiel? I mean, isn't Ezekiel one of those ones that's standing in the gap? As he, he was taken captive and he was preaching to the, the, the exiles in Babylon and faithfully prophesying to them about what God said, and he was faithful to tell them everything God said. What about Ezekiel? Well, we, as you know, in our study of Ezekiel, we haven't been able to study Ezekiel without studying Jeremiah at the same time. What about Jeremiah? I mean, wasn't Jeremiah faithful to stand there and to preach the word of God and to tell them what God said? He had it really hard. He had it really rough, but what, Jeremiah doesn't count. Well, what about Isaiah? Isaiah started this actually prior to those guys, and they, he was prophesying. And Isaiah's a faithful prophet, wouldn't you think, standing, speaking the words of God? Also, during this time, because of the captivity, we know some guys like Daniel, and we know him as Hanan uh, you know him as um, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I know him as Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael. They're Hebrew names. Remember those guys that were willing to stand and be spared the fiery furnace and escape the, the mouth of lions and all these things? What about them? These were the godly men that lived at that time. So how come God said, I looked for a man to stand in the gap and there was none? So the judgment's coming. What about Ezekiel? What about Jeremiah? What about Isaiah? What about Daniel? Go for it. You're right. He's not talking about them, and it's important you listen closely. As we're not going to take the time to go back and look at each one of their calls. But Daniel, Ezekiel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and Jeremiah, and Isaiah, they had all been given a specific role. What was Ezekiel's role that he was given? He wasn't even given that role until after he was taken into exile into Babylon when he turned 30 years old. What was the role he was given? As a watchman and to preach to who? The exiles in Babylon. Word would spread back to, Ezekiel, to Jerusalem, but he was mainly to speak to them. What was Jeremiah's role? He was to stay in Jerusalem and speak to the people in Jerusalem. Isaiah, the same thing. By the way, what were Jeremiah and Isaiah told when God gave them their calls about what, what would be the response to their ministries? They're not going to listen. Remember Isaiah? When he said, whom will I send? Who will go for me? And Isaiah says, here am I, send me. The very next verse, God says, you're going to be ever preaching, and they're not going to listen. Isaiah was given a role, and his role was to preach and to be that mouthpiece, the one that gave the evidence of what God said. So when they stood before God, they can't say, well, we didn't know. Oh, you knew. I sent Isaiah over and over and over, and you cut him in two. You put him in a log, and you cut him in half. Well, we didn't know. Oh, yeah, yeah, you knew. 
I gave you Jeremiah as well, and him you beat up, and you threw him down in the well and left him for dead, and you did a whole lot of horrible stuff to him, even his amanuensis Baruch, you treated him badly too. You knew their roles were to speak to the people. Their role wasn't to be the one to stand in the gap and build the wall. Their role was to be the mouthpiece for the Lord. I, John the Baptist's role was what? To make straight the paths, to prepare the way for the Messiah. Was he to be the one that stood in the gap? No, he was just to be the one who proclaimed. That was one of the biggest things that I had to deal with when I left the pastorate and went into this traveling ministry. I had all these great dreams of how I was going to see revival break out across the country. Been blessed to see God do amazing things in the churches where I pastored and God be glorified and how churches grew and people got on fire for the Lord and neat things were happening and those were just some great years. And I just assumed when God called me to leave the pastorate and go travel this country and speak these truths from his word to the churches that we're going to see revival break out. And then one day God said, I never told you they were going to listen. I just told you to go say it. You know what's interesting? Go to Daniel chapter 3. I found as I did a study on this that the people of Babylon listened more than the people of Israel. In Daniel chapter 3, look at verses 28 through 30. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him. And he set aside the king's command, and he yielded up the, they yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore I make a decree, any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb, and their houses laid to ruins, for there is no other god who is able to rescue in this way. And then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Isn't that interesting? The Babylonians listened to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Go to Jeremiah 39. This one surprised me. Jeremiah 39, verses 40 through, through sorry, 39, 11 through chapter 40, verse 5. Jeremiah 39, 11, through chapter 40, verse 5. It says, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, gave command concerning Jeremiah through Nebuchadnezzar. This is when the city is being besieged and all the people are being taken away captive now. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, gave command concerning Jeremiah through Nebuchadnezzar, the captain of the guard, saying, Take him, look after him well, and do him no harm, but deal with him as he tells you. So Nebuchadnezzar, the captain of the guard, Nebuchadnezzar, and Rabsaris, Negrosarizer, and Rabmag, and all the chief officers of the king of Babylon, sent and took Jeremiah from the court of the guard. They entrusted him to Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, that he should take him home. So he lived among the people. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah while he was shut up in the court of the guard, and he said, Go and say to Ebed-Milech, the Ethiopian, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I'll fulfill my words against this city for harm, and not for good, and they shall be accomplished before you on that day. But I will deliver you on that day, declares the Lord, and you shall not be given into the hand of the men whom you're afraid. 
For I will surely save you, and you shall not fall by the sword, but you shall have your life as a prize of war, because you have put your trust in me, declares the Lord. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, after Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, had let him go from Ramah, when he took him and bound him in chains along with all the captives of Jerusalem and Judah who were being exiled to Babylon, the captain of the guard took Jeremiah and said to him, The Lord your God pronounced this disaster against this place. The Lord has brought it about and has done it as he said. Because you guys sinned against the Lord and didn't obey his voice, this thing has come upon you. Now behold, I release you today from the chains on your hands, and if it seems good to you to come with me into Babylon, come, and I'll look after you well. But if it seems wrong to you to come with me to Babylon, don't come. See, the whole land's before you. Go wherever you think is good and right to go if you remain. Then return to Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, whom the king of Babylon appointed governor over the cities of Judah, and dwell with him among the people. Or go wherever you think it right to go. So the captain of the guard gave him an allowance of food and a present and let him go. So catch up with what's going on here. When they're besieging Jerusalem and they're taking everybody captive, Jeremiah's taken captive as well, and he's taken in chains. When he gets to the place where the captain of the guard is there, the captain of the guard says, oh, hey, hey guys, take the chains off of that guy. This is the prophet Jeremiah. He's the one that's been prophesying that this was going to happen, and everything he said has been, is happening true. And Nebuzaradan quotes God. This is all happening because you did this, and you did this, and you did this, and you wouldn't listen. Isn't that interesting? Jeremiah stands for years preaching to the people of Israel. And they say, no, that's not going to happen. Even those ones that went into exile, they're only going to be for a couple of years. Then they're coming back. Don't tell them to plant and do all that stuff. They're not going to be there very long. The priests were whitewashing it, saying everything's fine. This is all good. But the Babylonians heard the preaching of Jeremiah, and they believed it. You may be surprised who actually listens to you folks. How often have we tried so hard to get some person to hear? You ever been there? Man, if I can only get someone to hear, it could be a husband, it could be a wife, it could be a friend. All we've been told is to tell. Whether they listen or not, that's not up to us. But you may be surprised who's actually listening. Their role were to be prophets of God and to just speak the truth in those days and leave the results to God. Since there was no one at that time who would stand in the gap between God and Israel, and by the way, there was a big gap, there must be another one who's going to do so in the last days when God restores the fortunes of Israel, and they return to him with their whole hearts. It's kind of understood, don't you think? That in order for them to be brought back, there's going to have to be one who stands in the gap, who makes intercession between the Israelites and their God. And when's he going to do it? Trick question. He's already done it. He's already done it at the cross. He's just going to come back and have it come to fulfillment when he steps foot on the earth again. He's already stood in the gap on their behalf. A Jew can be saved just as much as a Gentile right now and be a part of his church. The standing in the gap has already been accomplished. He was the one. And so I want to close tonight by reading to you some scriptures that remind us that what's all going to be done has been and will be done by Jesus himself. So with that in mind, everybody take a deep breath. <sighs> it ain't up to me. I'm just to do what he tells me to do. And I love you, and I hope you listen. But if you don't listen, I'll be rewarded just as much as if you did or didn't. Same for you. Speak where he tells you to speak. Go to Isaiah 59. 
Look at verses 14 through 21. Justice is turned back, and righteousness stands far away. For truth has stumbled in the public squares. Does that sound like today or what? And uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking. And he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. Boy, that's true, isn't it? He who departs from evil makes himself a prey. The Lord saw it, and it displeased him. He saw that there was no justice. He saw there was no man, and he wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation, and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation in his hand, on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as, as a cloak. According to their deeds, so will he repay. Wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies. To the coastlands he'll render repayment. So they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. For he will come like a rushing stream, which the wind of the Lord drives. And a redeemer will come to Zion and those to those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares the Lord God. Whenever I read this section and I see about how he puts righteousness on as a breastplate and the helmet of salvation on his head, I always think back to all those years that as a preacher, I, all I did was copy what everybody else said. Because have you all heard the preacher say how Paul was sitting in a Roman prison and he looked at the Roman soldier and he took the Roman soldier's armor and he put that in his illustration? When Paul wrote about the armor of God in Ephesians chapter 6, he wasn't writing because there was a Roman soldier next to him and he was using the Roman soldier's armor. What was he doing? Quoting from Isaiah, where that had already been written. Go to Isaiah 63. Isaiah 63, verses 1 through 6. Who is this that comes from Edom, in crimson garments from Basra? He who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. It is I, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red and your garments like his who treads in the winepress? I have trodden the winepresses alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood spattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and the year, my year of redemption had come. I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled, but there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought me salvation, and my wrath upheld me. I trampled down the peoples in my anger. I made them drunk in my wrath, and I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. Re Revelation chapter 5. Revelation chapter 5, verses 1 through 14. Then I saw on the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll, written within and on the back, and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah... The root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the living, four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, and which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. 
And he went and he took the scroll from the right hand who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God, from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the voices of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. In each of these instances, they looked, and there was no human being able or worthy. Were we in trouble? No. Because the only one mighty to save is Jesus, and he's been the only one all along. The only one able to come back and conquer his enemies is Jesus, and is going to do it. And the only one able to open the scroll at the beginning of the seven-year tribulation is Jesus, and he's going to do it. Folks, I want you to hear me when I say this. Anything that makes you start feeling like it's up to you is not from God. He wants all the glory. Learn how to pray prayers that say, Lord, you do it. And if you choose to use me, great. But Lord, you do it. When you find yourself looking to a man, Lord, we need someone that's going to do. Lord, somebody needs to. Lord, you all the way through Scripture, folks, if we let the truth of this sink in, you'll see this has been here all along. Without realizing it, we've added man's necessity, if you will, or man's energy. We think that we need to do our part. This whole attitude of God helps those who help themselves has crept into the church without realizing it. Remember when God meets with Gideon and Gideon's hiding from the Midianites? And he says, hello, mighty warrior. And I love the fact I can picture Gideon going, you have definitely got the wrong address. You know, because this isn't even my house and I'm hiding in it. And I hope the people that who have it is don't come back right now because I don't want them to find me here. And God says, I'm going to use you to defeat the Midianites. And here's what I want you to do. I want you to go gather all these men. And God empowered him to gather 32,000 men. By the way, that sounds like a lot. But compared to the number of the Midianites, the Bible says you couldn't even count the Midianites. There are more you could count. So there's 32,000. And there is Gideon with his army. And God says, I'll tell you what. Anybody here that's scared and doesn't want to do this, tell them they're free to go home. And 22,000 say, thank you very much. And they leave. Now he's down to 10,000. And God says, here's what I want you to do. you still got way too many. I want you to have them go down to the water and let them just drink however they choose. But the ones who drink in this manner are the ones I've chosen. Does anybody remember how many were left? 300. And then he's going to have Gideon and those 300 go defeat the Midianites with no weapons. No weapons. They only had torches, pots, and trumpets. What was God trying to show? It's him. It's not you. It's me. It's my power. But we don't realize it. We keep thinking, we need somebody to do this. We need someone to step up. We need this. And folks, don't put your confidence in a man. Don't put your confidence in a president. Don't put your confidence in a vice president. We need to keep an attitude that says we need God. Oh, but be careful. Because there's many people that pray we need God and then they tell God what he's supposed to do. 
Didn't Martha do that? Lord, Lord, tell my sister to help me. She called him Lord and then bossed him around. All the way through the scripture, the Bible teaches that it's him and him alone. and He wants all the glory. And all he's asking of us is to turn to him. Oh, in Matthew, the Bible says that Jesus stood in front of a group of people and he said, the fields are white unto harvest, but the laborers are few. And we have heard the preacher from then on say, we need more laborers in the harvest field, haven't we? I mean, Jesus said the fields are white unto harvest, but the laborers are few. We need more workers. There should have been more people at visitation on Tuesday night. If you guys knocked on more doors, if everybody would just invite one person next week, we could double our attendance in one week. Doesn't that all sound good? That's all of the flesh. That's not of God. That's of man. Let me tell you something. Just because it grows fast doesn't mean it's healthy. Take it from a man with cancer cells in his body. There's a lot of churches out there doing all these different schemes and marketing schemes to get more numbers, to grow their church. Just because your numbers are increasing doesn't mean it's of God. There's only one. Go ahead, Jeff. Exactly. I love it. The seed that sprang up quickly had no root. Going back to that passage, though, when Jesus said, the fields are white unto harvest, but the laborers are few. What does Jesus say next? Pray the Lord of the harvest to send laborers into his field. Let God pick who he sends, when he sends, how he sends, and where he sends. This is God's work. We need so many more people in this part of the world. I think God knows that. This is a part of the globe here that hasn't heard the gospel yet. I think God knows that. Maybe that's something you're supposed to be praying about instead of trying to do something about. We spend too much time in our own effort, our own energy. You could have easily said, Lord, Isaiah was standing in the gap. Jeremiah was standing in the gap. Ezekiel was standing in the gap. No, actually, they weren't. They were just doing what I asked them to do, which was to be that mouthpiece to a people that weren't going to listen, that had hard hearts and dull ears. And they were faithful to do what I asked them to do. The only one that's going to stand in the gap is me, and it's always been only me. Jesus said in John chapter 15, verse 5, Apart from me, you can do nothing. So I want you to learn to recognize when your prayers start moving from trusting in God and waiting on God and His timing and His power and His provision to your energy and your effort. You'll know when He speaks. You'll know when He tells you to do something. It'll never be you ought to. It'll always be, do this. You'll know. But if he hadn't spoken, wait. Keep praying and only move when he tells you to move. Now, are you looking for a man to rescue you? There is none. There has only been one, but he wasn't just a man. The world soon will follow, by the way, a man. It's getting close. The world will soon follow one but they're going to be duped. The only one who can right the wrongs and restore righteousness and judgment is God himself, the man God, Jesus Christ. My question is, as we get close to the time of the end, do you know him? Listen, I didn't say, have you heard of him? I didn't say, have you heard about him? I'm not saying, that. have you studied about his life? I'm saying, do you know him? 
We're going to close with John chapter 17, verses 1 through 5. I love that whatever seed that sprang up quickly had no root, Jeff. I must steal that. Of course, you stole it anyway. You stole it from Jesus. You didn't write it. John chapter 17. Listen to what Jesus prays. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven, and he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ that you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Everything we just talked about was all right there. Jesus did only what the Father had him to do. Did a lot of people have expectations of Jesus? A lot of people have things they wanted him to do, but he only did what the Father had him to do. Folks, find what that is, and you're going to find Christianity is a blast, and church is a whole lot more fun than you thought. You don't have to be on every committee. You might not have to be on any. (gasps) On top of that, he said, this is eternal life, that they know you and the one that you sent. That's the biggest thing. I hope one day, and that sadly, as I travel around and I talk to people around the country and meet them for the first time and say, if you died today, would you go to heaven? And a lot of them say yes. And I say, how do you know? Well, I'm a good church member. You'd be amazed how many people say, I work really hard on this committee and I work really hard here and I'm real faithful to this and that. And I have to look at them and say, the Bible says those aren't any good answers. Do you know him? If you don't, don't leave here tonight before you do. I love you. Thanks so much for coming. We'll see you next week. <laughs>